Let us now take up our Bibles and turn in our Old Testament scripture reading to the book of Job, Job chapter 19. Continuing on in this Sunday's sermon with the theme of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Job 19, verses 23 through 27. This can be found on page 429 in the chapel Bible. Hear now the word of our God. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in the book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Amen. Let us turn once more in our Bibles to our New Testament scripture reading, which will also be our passage for this morning's sermon. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This can be found on page 961 in the Pew Bibles. Our sermon this morning will be based on verses 12 through 22, but for context we will begin reading in verse 1. Hear now the word of our God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let us pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon this, the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful word, this gospel word, through your servant, the Apostle Paul, to the Corinthian church. And may you enlighten our minds and our hearts to receive understand and believe this word that you have spoken to us. Write it upon our hearts that we may believe and obey. Be with your servant as he speaks. Give him clarity of mind and heart to communicate clearly your word to this congregation. Speak, O Lord, for your children have gathered to listen. Jesus. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Isn't it a wonderful time as we enter into the spring season? You look at the blossoms of the pear trees, of the apple trees, and the various fruit trees we see around. We see those blossoms and anticipate the leaves coming to full growth. All in expectation for the ripe harvest in the fall. But one day you go out to one of these fruit trees and you see the first ripe apple or the first ripe pear. You grab it, you taste it, and it is sweet, delicious. And you think to yourself, if this is what one apple tastes like, what will the rest of the harvest be when we gather in all the apples of the tree? We'll make apple pie, apple cider, apple sauce, all these delicious dishes from a single apple tree. We expect that when we taste our first bite. This first apple that we taste is a first fruit of the full harvest of the apples yet to come. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the image that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection from the dead ensures that we too will share in His resurrection. We just sang of this in our hymn, Alleluia, Alleluia, where because we have tasted the beginnings of that resurrection, we shall also experience it at the very end. There is one connection that binds Christ to us. These are not disconnected. We are one body in Christ. And we are united by one spirit. We shall enjoy resurrection glory. And the problem is, if you deny one resurrection, you deny the other. They must be connected. For in Christ, our past is forgiven. Our purpose in life is given. And we have a future home in the creation. So this morning, we will consider our passage in 1 Corinthians 15 under this theme. 
Christ's resurrection from the dead ensures the future resurrection of all who belong to Christ. Christ's resurrection from the dead ensures the future resurrection of all who belong to Christ. We'll consider this idea in three points. First, we will consider the claim of resurrection denied. Second, the hope of salvation lost. And third, the truth of resurrection guaranteed. Let us begin first with considering our first point, the claim of resurrection denied. To understand the context of Paul's message to the Corinthians, we have to consider that this chapter, chapter 15, is the climax of Paul's argument throughout. In chapter 1, he has already mentioned the word of the cross as being the gospel of our salvation. Though the world considers the cross of Christ foolishness, yet to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But the problem with the Corinthian Christians, they forgot this gospel. They had embraced the values of their culture in Corinth, which valued power, prestige, and smooth words of speech, so that they could jockey with one another for position and power in the church. They were meant to be a witness of Christ to their community, but instead they had let the community the culture teach them how to live. And this caused division. This caused strife. Factions fighting against each other for power, for influence. The strong often at the expense of the weak. And Paul will have none of this. He says, no. Is Christ divided? He asks in chapter 1. The answer is obviously no. Where he will go on in chapter 12 to say that we are one body in Christ, united by one spirit. And though each of us are diverse and different from each other, yet we have the same hope of salvation. But then we come to the climax here in chapter 15. He reminds the Corinthians, it is the gospel that unites us. That is what's of first importance. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. On the third day, He was risen from the dead. All in accordance with the Scriptures. God's Word that He had promised throughout the ages that though we once were sinners, yet God never sought, ceased to seek us out and restore us. The promise of life reconciled to God has been the hope of all generations since the first gospel in the Garden of Eden, where God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. You will crush your head, and you shall lose the seed. And now, with the coming of Christ, we see that clearly expressed. The Son of Woman, Jesus Christ, has come. He died for our sins. He was buried and was risen on the third day to redeem and save us from sin and from the power of sin, namely the devil and death. And what we read, even from verse 11 of chapter 15, Paul seems to indicate that this message 
that he preached was believed by all. All the Corinthians, it seems, had embraced this gospel, which said that Christ was raised from the dead. Which brings us now to our first verse. Verse 12. Paul makes a very shocking claim. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The gospel message says Christ was risen from the dead, and yet some of you say no resurrection. In the mind of some of these Corinthians, there's a disconnect. Yes, we can believe in a resurrection of Jesus, but that the dead are raised? That's ludicrous. Dead people don't rise from the dead. The church was not united in the gospel. The factions that had grown had reached even to the very heart of the gospel. The church was not united even in this, which ought to have united them. Some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. Now in our mind we may wonder, why did some of these Corinthians not believe in a resurrection of the dead? Why would they think that it is ridiculous, foolishness? Well, in the culture, in the, in the, in the, in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, many of the Greeks and Romans believed that what is essential to me as a human being is the soul. But the body, that's a prison house. It's a cage that weighs me down. And when I die, my soul is relieved from the constraints of the body. Because in the mind of philosophers such as Plato and the Stoics, the soul is the real me. And therefore, I can do whatever I want with the body, and when I die, I will be free. They deny the essential unity of the body and soul in our humanity. Not only this, but they also, if you were to mention anything of a resurrection from the dead to these Corinthians, whatever background they were from, the image that would pop in their minds would not be a glorious bodily resurrection, but a zombie apocalypse. Resuscitation of corpses or ghosts, shades that wander around. And they would look at either of these possibilities and say, ridiculous. Why would you want to have a post-death existence? It is awful. Why be constrained by this body? The goal is to be released. Well, brothers and sisters, even in our culture, in our day-to-day, there are many people who believe that there is a division. Not between soul and body, for many deny that the soul will even be immortal, that the soul is extinguished even at death. And yet, there is still a division in the minds of many who say, my person is the real me. My body is not me. And therefore, if my body is not in conformity to who I believe I am, I can change it, and I can do whatever I want. My body, my choice. 
not even my body to begin with. It's just what I inhabit. The real me is my person. I can be whoever I want to be. Therefore, for someone who identifies, let's say, a man who says, I am a woman, but I am trapped in a man's body, for them to hear this teaching of the resurrection of the dead is horrifying to them. Why? Because in their mind, they think, my identity is I'm a woman. Why would I want to be raised permanently as a man? It's horrible. Horrifying. Even in our day, resurrection is scoffed at. Because the most people can think of is zombies, vampires. Or even, some scientists are even, we even go so far as to say, we can continue to live out our lives apart from the body in machines. You can see this in many science fiction movies where some people will try to remove their consciousness from their bodies and be placed in machines. All of these believe in the radical distinction, radical separation of the body from the soul. And the problem with the Corinthian church was that they had allowed this worldly perspective to take root in the church. And we can be tempted to view even our bodies in the same way. What those in our day and the Corinthians back then believed, they had two things in common. They denied the unity of body and soul, as we mentioned, but they also believed something else. Death is a natural part of life. People live and die and go on. It's part of the circle of life, as some say. Is that what the Bible teaches? That death is a natural part of life? No, as we considered even in Sunday school today, by one man's act of disobedience, Adam, sin came into the world, and death through sin. The culture rejects that. Death has always been a part of life. In fact, death is to be preferred because why live in this horrible existence where my body slowly decays unto death? Why would I want what they have in mind, whether the Corinthians in Corinth or Westerners in our day, death still reigns. Death reigns as a power. Its stranglehold is over all who have not turned to faith in Christ. Death still reigns. And yet, what has Paul, what has Paul said before to the Corinthians, even earlier in chapter 6, he says that the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised up our Lord from the dead, and He will also raise up our bodies. He has already said this to the Corinthians previously in his letter. And yet still they deny no resurrection. Dead people don't rise. Which brings us to our second point the hope of salvation lost. What Paul goes on to describe in the following verses is a refutation 
He could have just easily said, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? In fact, Christ is raised from the dead. But he doesn't go there quite yet. Instead, he shows, okay, you say there is no resurrection of the dead, let's follow the logical repercussions of that world. Let's see where that leads. What hope does that give if there is no resurrection of the dead? He begins in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If dead people don't rise, then Christ did not rise from the dead. Because we claim that Christ did rise from the dead in a resurrected body. But you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, therefore Christ is not raised. He remains dead in the grave, which means he wasn't the righteous Savior. He was a sinner like you and I. But it goes even further. Verse 14. And if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The gospel is empty of content. There's no substance to the truth that we profess. And and Paul says to the Corinthians, this message that we preach to you is nothing. It is nothing but air and vapor. If it is not true that the dead are raised, if it is not true that Christ was raised. He goes on in verse 15 to say, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now, the word that's there in the ESV is a bit softened. Literally, the word to be misrepresenting God means to be false witnesses. That's the word in the original language. They are false witnesses. Who is false speaking? Himself and the over 500 witnesses who have testified they have seen the risen Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, if the dead are not raised, we are liars. We are false witnesses. Because we testified about God that He did raise Christ. But you say the dead are not raised, therefore we are misrepresenting God. We're bearing false witness about God. We are nothing but bald-faced liars. And brothers and sisters, why should anyone believe us? If we confess the words of the Apostles' Creed that Christ did rise from the dead on the third day and that the body was, and our bodies will be raised if it is not true that the dead are raised. If it's just wishful thinking. If it is true that the dead are not raised, why are we even here? Why are we even gathered in this place? Why not live life the way that we want? Grab all you can because you just live once. That's the life of the world, the thinking of our age, because there is no hope of life to come. But we must remember, brothers and sisters, that the message of God's vindication of His people, that He would get, raise them from death to life, has in the promise of the gospel since the beginning. Enoch, the seventh from Adam. It says in Genesis 5 that he was the, he was the only one who did not taste death. He did not die 
but God took him. We read about this also even with Elijah the prophet. He was taken up by the angels of God in the chariot of fire into heaven. These two witnesses testify to us that there is a hope hereafter. This life is not all there is. There is a future to come. We, can, we saw this in the testimony of Job when he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. In my flesh I will see God, whom I shall behold and not another. Not just my soul, but my body itself will see my Redeemer. The prophet Daniel also writes in Daniel 12, he speaks of the, the raising of all people. Those from the dust will awaken, some to everlasting life, and those others to everlasting condemnation. We can read about this also in the Gospel of John. Martha, the sister of Mary and brother and sister of Lazarus who died, said to Jesus, I believe that my brother will rise again from the dead at the last day. Testifying that it was the hope of God's people throughout history that God would provide reconciliation and a future life not just for the soul but for the body as well Christ Jesus himself became a full human body and soul to redeem us body and soul but if it is true that the dead are not raised then as Martin Luther says God is not God he is faithless untrustworthy if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul goes on. In verse 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. We remain under God's curse of death if Christ did not die for our sins and rise from the dead. After all, Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of death, Satan himself. We saw this in the temptation of Christ by the devil. We rejoice in his victory over the temptation of Satan, even to the very moment of death. Jesus kept obedience to the cross to redeem us. But if he did not rise from the dead, he remains dead in sins. And if he remains dead in sins. We are still in our sins. We have no hope of reconciliation before God. Nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment if Christ is not raised from the dead. Not only this, Paul goes on in verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Perhaps some in the Corinthian church believed the lie that said, well, our bodies may not be raised from the dead, but at least our souls will go to be in some ethereal location where we'll ever be with the Lord, but these, these bodies will just continue to rot in the world. We can have the one without this. Paul is saying it's a one-package deal. You deny the redemption of one, you deny the redemption of the other. Jesus came to redeem body and soul. But if the dead are not raised, then even believers who have fallen asleep, who have died, have perished. Their souls 
remain in torment, in hell, with everyone. Some of you know that recently uh, my youngest brother, Timothy, passed away very suddenly. It came as a shock to all of us. And my parents, my siblings, and I continue to wrestle with the grief of his loss. The hardest part is that we do not know if he was killed. And yet, we still cling on to the hope that maybe at the last the Lord changed his heart and saved him. But brothers and sisters, if it is true that the dead are not raised, then not even those who have died believe in Christ. I remember speaking to one of my brothers as we were discussing trying to encourage each other in our grief. He said to me, the way I cope with Tim's loss is that, yeah, he's gone. As long as we keep the memories of him alive in our minds, he'll still be with us. When I heard that, my heart sank. If that's the only hope we have for those who have passed on, then it is not just the memory, that's it. If the dead are not raised, there's nothing left. There is no hope if there is no resurrection of the dead. Which brings Paul to the final resounding conclusion of his argument. Verse 19. If in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most Paul lays down the gauntlet. Okay? Say there's no resurrection. Then you're saying that only this life, in this life we have hope in Christ. But if that's the case, we're the most miserable of all people. It's not something that, okay, well, you can continue to live a good, pious life, continuing to keep the commandments, following Jesus, but it won't mean much in the end anyway. No, Paul is saying, you're the most miserable of all people. We are the most miserable of all people if the dead are not raised. Why? It's not that we simply endure the pain and struggle of this age with death, decay, sickness, grief, but more than that, the, uh, the message of the gospel, the call of Jesus to us, is to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. Which means even being willing to be executed for the gospel. Because implicit in that is the hope of future life to come. But if it is true that this is all an illusion, it's all hogwash, then why believe the gospel? Why take this command? Why not grab the best that life can offer while we still can? Even for the Corinthians, in their day, many had boasted in the various spiritual gifts that they had received. Some were claimed to be prophesying, others speaking in tongues, and using these gifts as a way of saying, well, I'm better than you, I'm better than you, I'm better than you. But Paul is saying here, if you're prizing this when there is no resurrection of the dead, you are fools in the eyes of the world. 
Why boast in these if there is no resurrection, if there is no future? Even for Paul, he tells the Corinthians in chapter 9 that I put my body under subjection so that I may win others to Christ. I willingly choose to forego the pleasures of this life because I know that there is a hereafter. And yet if it is true that the dead are not raised, what a waste of time. Waste of energy. If there is no resurrection, we are nothing but liars, guilty sinners, and have nothing but expectation of judgment. To deny that there is a resurrection of the dead and still claim that Jesus rose from the dead is like taking that apple, apple, apple from the tree. You bite it, you taste it, but in the end you say, it's rotten. Let's burn down the tree and cut it down. When you know the exact opposite, it is ripe. The tree is going to come to full harvest. And yet you take an axe, a chainsaw, and you cut it down and burn it. You lose the hope of the one apple. You lose the hope of the whole harvest. If you are connected. But thanks be to God that Paul doesn't end there. He says, if it is true that the dead are not raised, you are the most miserable. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The world is not correct. The devil is not correct. These Stoics, these Platonists, even Westerners in our day who deny the connection of body and soul, they are all liars. But God is true. God's word is true. He has confirmed the promise he made to our fathers that he would provide a hope for resurrection. And this he has given to us in Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead on the third day as the first fruits, the first taste of the harvest of resurrection. Because Jesus died and rose from the again, as Paul says to the Corinthians, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. John Calvin, writing on this passage, says this, quote, Christ did not die or rise again for himself, but for us. Hence his resurrection is the foundation for ours. And what was accomplished in him must be fulfilled by us also. End quote. The two are connected. Because Christ is risen, we too shall rise from the dead. The image that Paul uses the first fruit. Here Paul is hearkening back to the Old Testament law in Leviticus 23 of the feast days. If you have your Bibles, if you will turn with me very briefly to that passage, Leviticus 23, we'll see what Paul is getting at. Beginning in verse 9, Moses writes, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheep of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests, 
and he shall wave the sheep before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheep, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of the hymn. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched or fresh until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Now notice what is being described of this first fruit. It is offered the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. When did Christ rise from the dead? The first day of the week. He arose as the first fruits of our blessed resurrection. This feast was a picture pointing to Christ. And a few verses later, uh, the, the law goes on to describe the Feast of Weeks, the Pentecost, where the Spirit, later in fulfillment of this feast, was poured out. Where all believers in Christ who have tasted the fruit of the Spirit are called first fruits. We also share in the new life that Christ has given to us. We confess this even in our Heidelberg Catechism. Question 45. What are the benefits that we receive from Christ's resurrection? Well, in the first place, by his resurrection, he has overcome death that he might make us partakers, sharers in the righteousness that he has obtained for us by his death. And also, second, by his power, we are now being raised to life. This he gives to us by the Spirit. And as we see in our passage, the resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. As Christ rose from the dead, we too shall rise, body and soul. But Paul doesn't stop there to say that Christ is the first fruits. He backs up his claim by appealing to Old Testament history, by appealing to the origin of sin and death in this world. Verse 21, Paul writes, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Humanity is not a loose collection of individuals. All of humanity is descended from two people, Adam and Eve. And because of their one sin, sinful nature has been passed on to us to this day, to all mankind. Because of one man's act of disobedience, sin and death came to all. But also by the obedience of one man, Christ Jesus, eternal life and righteousness abounded in many. As Paul describes elsewhere in Romans 5, which we even uh, considered this morning in Sunday school. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, and we all died in him. And as a result, death reigns not as a natural part of the world, but as an enemy, an invader that doesn't belong here. Death is unnatural, brothers and sisters. It is not a part of this world. It came as a result of our sin. 
therefore Christ came to remove death and its power. Christ arose, he died and rose from the dead to defeat death forever. As Paul says in Romans 6, 9, death no longer has dominion over him. And because it has no more dominion over Christ, it will no longer have dominion over us who belong to Christ. We too shall share in that blessed hope. All who belong to Christ are united by His Spirit whom He has given to us. He raised us from death to life so that we might believe and embrace the Gospel. Jesus is the life-giving Spirit. As Paul will go on later in this chapter, verse 45, to say, The first Adam became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving Spirit. This is who our Lord Jesus is. Because by the one man Adam, death came to all, by the one man Christ, eternal life, resurrection life, comes to all who belong to him. As Paul goes on in verse 23 to say, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Our resurrection is assured, guaranteed which is why his resurrection from the dead, Christ's resurrection, ensures our future resurrection. So, brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, in conclusion, you have eaten the first apple. You've tasted the first fruit of the harvest to come. Does that not whet your appetite for more? Does that not stir in your heart a desire for the full harvest of resurrection to come? Indeed, it does. It gives us hope. It gives us strength and encouragement. Christ has risen from the dead. Therefore, our resurrection, both body and soul, is ensured. But I must say this. If you are here this day, and you contend that there is no resurrection, and believe that there is no hope after this life. I have this to say. You, you too will rise from the dead, but in bodies of condemnation. The resurrection will come to all people, but only those in Christ will have a resurrection glory. Those apart from Christ will rise in new bodies, but unto everlasting judgment. There is no hope without Jesus Christ. Give up your belief that the body and soul are radically separated. Christ came to redeem both. Give up your belief that death is a natural part of life. Christ came to defeat it. And give up the belief that the body can be used for whatever you want. You belong, body and soul, to your faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ calls you now Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, but I will raise him up at the last day. Trust in him. Believe in the risen and exalted Christ that you may share in his resurrection glory. And brothers and sisters, if this is what you believe in your heart, then know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As Paul says at the end of this letter, 
press on in your life. Keep going. You've tasted already of the full harvest. Wait for it to come. An eager expectation. For we, body and soul, will live forever with the Lord. In resurrection glory, where death, corruption, and sin will be no more. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this gospel truth, the wonderful glory of the resurrection that we have in Christ. May you stir up our hearts, stir up our minds to be faithful to your commands with ever-increasing joy in knowing that our resurrection is assured because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This life is not all that there is. There is still more to come. Yes, even as we face disease, disappointment, grief, it's not the end. It's only for a season. And then when that season is over, you, Lord Jesus, will return to bring us to yourself in new resurrection glory, where in the new creation we shall forever be. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and bring about this full harvest. And until that day comes, give us help by your Spirit to press on and share the gospel to as many as you will call to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name.